The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. In December 2015, Wheaton College professor Larissa Hawkins expressed her support for Muslim Americans in a Facebook post. She wrote, quote, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Unquote. The impact of Professor Hawkins' post was explosive. Soon everyone from journalists to pastors, theologians to average Christian congregants, were locked in heated debate and probing questioning on this question. Do Christians and Muslims really worship the same God? And what does it even mean to say that they do? In this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast, we discuss these issues with Dr. Andy Bannister. Dr. Bannister is director and lead apologist for RZIM in Canada. He has a PhD in Islamic studies and is author of the academic monograph, An Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran, Lexington Books, 2014. This conversation is a follow-up to our earlier conversation with Drake DeLong Farmer of Bold Cup of Coffee. In that wide-ranging conversation, which I've linked you to in the website, it's at YouTube, Dr. Bannister helpfully guided us through several theological, practical, and cultural issues in the engagement with Islam in the West. In this podcast, we center on the discussion, the, the discussion on that central question raised by Dr. Hawkins. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Andy, it's great to have you back to focus in on this one particular question, whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So let me just take a moment to set up the question again. You provided a response to it in the last podcast, and I wanted to come back this time and just unpack that a little bit more and uh, have uh, maybe push back a little bit as well on it. So, so again, the setup for this was this professor at Wheaton College, Larisha Hawkins, in December 2015, responding to a growing fear of Muslims and a heightening of rhetoric against Muslims in the United States, particularly at the time by Donald Trump, who had called for a cessation of immigration of Muslims to the United States. She, in response, I think quite laudably, said she wanted to express solidarity with the Muslim community, just like Christians should with any marginalized or persecuted or misunderstood community. And then she, one of the, the aspects of what she said, though, was that she agreed with Pope Francis, who had talked about this idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And that was uh, now an issue which led to a big controversy between her and Wheaton College. And it has, more importantly, perhaps spawned a wider conversation, whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And I think part of the issue here is what that even means. So I think sometimes... Hmm just simply parsing out the question, interpreting what it means, has been missed in the furor to answer the question. And I think we're probably all mistaken if we don't begin by addressing what the question means uh, as the first step in answering it. Now, you've provided an answer, and so I, maybe you could recap some of what you said there, yeah. and then I'll just offer a response. Yeah, so, uh, so Randall, what I said in the last podcast was I said, I think... Uh, that question do Muslims and Christians worship the same God is in some ways you know perfectly good textbook example of a bad question and ba a bad question for me is a question that takes multiple ideas and confuses them into one one question and you end up with something that looks like you know five kittens and a ball of string and you have to untangle it to, to work out the different elements so in other words it's very cute 
very, very, very cute and very furry, <laughs> full of claws. And if you've got a you know pet fur allergy, you're in trouble. Um, so. Um, where were we? Just lost I my... didn't mean no, to no, break no, no, your it's, train of thought. It's well. fine. I was thinking bad puns around catastrophic <laughs> and various kind of things. Oh my goodness. Uh, no, meow. Um, now, so where were we? So, I think it confuses two things together. There's the question of um, who is and what is the, the God described by the Quran and by Islamic theology? Is that the same God described by the Bible? But there's also the question of, of what is it and who is it Muslims are worshipping? And it's easy to lazily collapse those, but they're not the same. So I started by saying, I think, in the earlier podcast, when we look at how the Quran describes God, the attributes that are used for God time and time again, the, the chief attributes of God in the Quran are very different from the attributes of the God of the Bible. Maybe I'll, we can flesh that out as we, as we go later. But then what also interests me, the more I've studied the Quranic theology, is many of the, the, the key attributes uh, to, to the, that the Bible would use and in biblical theology turn up are either missing or are redefined. So I talked in the previous uh, uh, discussion around, you know, the God of the Bible being a God who's relational. Uh, I think that's a key biblical idea. The Quran uh, basically sort of flat out denies that. Um, the idea that the God of the that God can be known uh, in some way, um, I think, is there in biblical theology, and the Quran really plays that down considerably. The God of the Bible is a God who is described as a God of love. Um, the Quran reinterprets that in entirely, and then of course in the cross and the incarnation, the God of the Bible is a God who's who's suffered, uh, and the Quran really has a problem with that one because that that's beneath God. How could God possibly know what suffering is? And there are others we might explore. Um, an interesting one for me is, is for example, you take the idea of covenant, that the God is a God who covenants himself to humanity. That's there throughout both Old and New Testament. Quran has, again, huge problems with that idea, because how could God commit himself to, to, to human beings or bind himself in any way? And in, in some aspects of Islamic theology, there's the idea that, you know, Allah doesn't make promises, because if Allah promised something, he's unbound by his own word, and how could that be? And there's a real emphasis in Islamic theology and Quranic theology on the utter... The main idea in Islamic theology is the will of God. God's will will is supreme. He's utterly free. He can will what he wants. Doesn't mean, it doesn't even need to be consistent. He can be entirely arbitrary if he wants to, because will is supreme and everything else gets downplayed. So I think the God of the Quran looks very different. Now, individual Muslims, who are they, who are they worshipping? Well, you know, I've met many Muslims who tell me they believe in a God of love. They believe in a God it's possible to know. And early on in my encounter with Muslims, I would often push back and say, no, 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 you don't. That's not what the Quran says. And that's not helpful. It's arrogant, and it's always very foolish to try and redefine someone else's belief for them. Now what I tend to do is run more of an Act 17 number. So when I hear a Muslim tell me that you know they believe in a God of love, it's to do a bit like Paul did at the altar of the unknown God, and say, well, you know, I kind of agree with you. I agree there's a, there's a God who's a God of love, and let me draw you into a conversation, because I think I believe in that kind of God too, and I think the God that you're describing to me sounds more and more like the God of the, the Bible, and I want to try and draw them this way, and uh, and draw them away from Quranic theology. And so I think, who do, who do Muslims worship? Many Muslims are trying to worship the God of the Bible. They are yearning after a God who could be known, because as St. Augustine said, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in, in God. We're designed for a relationship uh, with God, and if we don't find that elsewhere, we're gonna, there's always gonna be part of us that's searching. So how do we draw our Muslim friends in, rather than just play clever doctrinal games and push them away? Hmm. Well said. So that, that sets a good platform for us to go forward. Yeah. Uh, so let me begin here then with, with all that in mind. Uh, I'd want to distinguish between, which I think you've been implicitly doing some of this, so between the question of reference, the question of what being does this person refer to, what being does the Christian or the Muslim refer to when they say God or Allah. Uh, so there's a question of linguistic reference, and then yeah. there's a question of worship act, so let's say, um, 
are they worshiping the God to which they are linguistically referring? And then there's the question of, let's say it's worship success. So is the being to which mm. they're extending worship accepting that which they're doing in such that it is successful for building a relationship or something? I want right. to just leave that third question totally out of the mix because that gets into the question of inclusivism, exclusivism, exactly. uh, are various different people relating to God when they refer to him? And really focus primarily on the first question to start here. So linguistic reference, are they referring to the same being? Now, here I'm going to push back on a couple, yeah, a couple of ways. So it makes it more fun. First of all, uh, so you've given the Acts 17 example. What, so it seems that Paul, because he quotes Stoic philosophers, he accepts that these Stoic philosophers, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, Epimenides and Aratus, you know, he, we are his offspring. He's ex- assuming that they are linguistically referring to the same being that he refers to when he says God, because he quotes them and applies what they say to God. Um, so despite all the great differences between Stoic philosophy and Christian, Judeo-Christian theology, Paul accepts that they can refer to God. Likewise, I mean, think about, of course, the Jews in the ancient world, they had massive differences. They didn't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, They didn't accept the doctrine of incarnation. They had a very different understanding about God, and yet they successfully linguistically referred to God. And if you go into the Christian pew, you would find Christians, their understanding of who God is in terms of doctrine, radically different from a classically trained theologian who, you know, the Christian will have uncritical anthropomorphism, for example. They think about God as having a body, acting in time, changing his mind. The academic theologian is going to deny all of those with this typically a very transcendent understanding of God from classical theism. If all of these groups successfully refer to God uh, when they use the word God or Allah, which of course Allah just being an Arabic word for God, then why couldn't the Muslim, would you say the Muslim then is not referring to God and if so why that difference there? Gosh, that's a great that's a great question. Never getting into a car with a with a theologian it always ends in different trouble. See, we're in a car right now recording this. We are exactly. So I've set this I've set the scene there. We're in a we're in a Randall's beautiful BMW. Clearly, he's paid huge amounts here at a, a Taylor. Um, it's actually a, a 2007 Civic. <laughs> oh, you just shattered a beautiful image there. Yeah, I think there's a number of things going on in in that question. I mean, let's start with Paul for a moment. I mean, yes, Paul quotes uh, their own poets at them. Is he quoting their poets because he's affirming their belief and going, they've got that right, or is he is he being rhetorical? Is an interesting question. Is he using mm-hmm. that as a as a platform? Because I'll do that with with Hindu friends, Buddhist friends, atheist friends. I'll, I'll find something that I can I can use as a hook to start the conversation. So I think there's a good, there's a good question there's a good question there. I think. One of the different, one of the issues here going on, and uh, you, 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 the way you put it with, with with theologians is helpful. I think a lot of Muslims in their language probably are talking about the the, the God of the, of the Bible because I think if people just talk about God more generally, I think you're sort of operating in that space. The problem for me, and this is why I grounded my answer here, really is the Quran because the Quran goes to mm. great lengths to say God is not like this and God is not like this to the extent that I've met plenty of Muslims actually were very happy to say no, we don't worship the same God as you because you guys are polytheists um, because you believe in you know you mm. claim you believe in one God, but what's this Trinity rubbish? And so I've met many many Muslims who actually from their side will say no. And in fact, interestingly, many Jews actually will also say, well, hang on a moment, I don't know what you guys are doing, but it certainly isn't isn't theism. Um, 
So I think the, the problem we have here is we're on murky ground. At what stage, how bad does our description of God need to be, Randall, before we're not talking about right. God? Yeah. I think we can sit here and if someone says, well, I believe in a God who's a creator and a God who is good and a God who's just and perhaps leave it there and say, okay, great, now in the same ballpark. What happens if we start saying, well, you know, I believe in a God who's not relational. I believe in a God who would never communicate personally. I believe in a God who would never step into history in the person of, of Jesus. I believe in a God who isn't love. Is there a point down that line where we say we've we, we've crossed a line and, we're, and, we're, and our description of God becomes so poor that we're describing something else entirely? I think my answer to the question is yes. I'm very happy for there to be a discussion around where it is. I think for me, the Quran, as understood within the context of Quranic theology, I think has crossed that line. Most Muslims as you talked about Christians in the pews and their language, many Muslims are not conversant in Quranic theology. What they're describing is not Quranic theology, and so I think are somewhere else on that line. So I think there is a line that you cross. I'm very happy for there to be a discussion around where one draws it. I think Quranic theology, for me, has crossed that, has crossed that line and is describing, is describing something else that is, irrecon is, ir is irreconcilable with, I think, the biblical theology of God. Many Muslims are not in that space. They're somewhere else. Okay, uh, let me let me take another example. Calvinists. So, and 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 there are many kinds of Calvinists. Let me take a more uh, the, the more extreme one. So, as a kind a Calvinist who says that God loves the elect and God hates the reprobate, and from eternity God has willed that the elect be chosen and that the reprobate serve as objects of wrath to manifest His glory. Now, this this is a view that you will find Christians. There's a certain Armenian Christians in particular saying that that's a false god. You know, I don't even recognize that god. Uh, sometimes I think what they're saying is rhetorical, but I think sometimes they do believe that. So would this, uh, would you say, um, given what you said about Muslims, that likewise these Calvinists are not referring to the god of Christianity? Well, we talked earlier in the earlier podcast about elephants in the room. I like the fact you've now created an elephant trap. So, uh, so I, I'm imagining that John Piper has probably got his phone on speed dial, uh, kind of right now. I'd be honored if I knew he was listening. <laughs> well, I do have to say one of my um, my favorite ever tweets that I ever read was a couple. I almost crashed the car almost a couple of years ago. I was driving along down the road, reading Twitter while while driving. Never do this. I've repented. I would never do it again. But for the purpose of the illustration, and Piper came up on my. Twitter feed, and he tweeted, if you have find yourself having trouble with the word Calvinist, just try substituting in your mind the word biblical. <laughs> uh, I, I just laughed, so I thought that's so wonderfully clever. So let me, I'm going to be, I'm going to be very British and ironic, let me disentangle it from the Calvinism piece for a minute, but let's do it more generally, Randall. Is it possible as Christians to describe and map out a theology that ends up falling guilty of the same charge that what we're describing I don't think is the God of the Bible? Yes, I, I think I think so. Um, I think there are warnings in Scripture uh, about what happens when that happens. I mean, one of the interesting things is this line that we described in Scripture. We, just, we talked about Acts 17. There's also at the other end of the spectrum, you have you know some of the biblical language about idolatry, particularly in the Old Testament, is pretty robust. I mean, you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the fun he mocks there, or in Isaiah where there's that beautiful little image of the of the guy cuts down the tree. He, you know, uses half the tree to make an idol, and the other half he cooks to make his lunch. And the mm. and the fun the Bible has there with the with the foolishness of idolatry. So there's a spectrum within biblical theology. I think it is possible to construct gods of our own imagination. I really think that is. Now, there's a sliding slope there from I think your image of God is skewed to what you have set out to me is so far from the view of the Bible that I have questions. I mean, a really good example of this is easier to pick on. Um, 
we talked in the other podcast a little bit about uh, about about the new atheism of Richard Dawkins, uh, an earlier podcast. And Dawkins, um, in his book The God Delusion, has this very famously quoted passage where he says, you know, the God of the Old Testament is one of the most uh, unpleasant characters in all fictions. You know, in all fiction, you know, capricious and proud of it, a, a bully, homicidal, megalomaniacal, hom- pestilential, homophobic. <laughs> the list goes on. And uh, I remember getting to that paragraph and you know going, whoa. Wow, there's words I didn't. I had to look up in there. Um, but I remember getting to the end and thinking, here's the thing, Richard, you say you don't believe in that kind of God, but I don't believe in that kind of God. That No Christian I know believes in that kind of God. Now, that's an easy target to pick on. It's low-hanging fruit. But it does show that I think we can construct images of God that are so far, so far from the reality there are, that there are questions. And I think as Christians, we need to ask ourselves that sobering question. Am I worshipping God, the biblical God, or am I worshipping a God of my own imagination. I remember one of my old theology profs once saying to me, he said, you know, saying in a lecture, if the if the Jesus that we read in the pages of the New Testament merely affirms all of our own prejudices, our own beliefs, our own theology, and doesn't challenge us, if we're not profoundly disturbed, we need to ask ourselves whether we have the real Jesus or the Jesus of our own imagination. And so I think that's an important question. Again, I don't I think the the, the difficulty is this is a muddy question. Where where does the line lie? I'm not I'm not sure. It's perhaps easy to spot it in others and begin worrying. I always worry that it's. we need to ask ourselves the same question as well. Very well said. So when we do come to Scripture, we could sort of wrap this conversation up by just coming to this final question I think that's, that's in here. Is we talk about the biblical God, but people have had developed very different and sometimes contrasting, sometimes contradictory pictures of the biblical God based upon which texts they focus on in Scripture. So, I'll, for example, I believe it's in Joshua 11, we read that Yahweh hardened the hearts of the Canaanites so that he might slaughter them without mercy. And that goes along with the call to eradicate these people and to drive them out of the land, including men, women, and children, Deuteronomy 20, for example. Uh, and, you know, many other texts like that in Scripture, where, where God appears to be violent and sometimes appears to be capricious. We, we, you know, the story of the Ark of the Covenant, the man who stumbles, he tries to, to hold up the Ark and God strikes him down in fury at that point and kills him. What do we do with those images? Because it seems like if, if you allow those images like that to become the controlling images in how you think about the biblical God, you could come up with a God that is fundamentally incongruous with what you've said about the Christian biblical God. No, you're right. I think one of the things we we tend to do as as Christians, don't we? There's a real temptation because the Bible offers such a rich variety of descriptions around God. The temptation is to play them off against each other. Um, we do that as Christians. We tend to select the texts that we we like and we're comfortable with, and those texts that perhaps disturb us or are challenging to our pet theological hobby horses, we tend to we tend to ignore. And we can also do that. I often come across that from skeptics. I mean, one of the most common questions I get in in open forums is the sort of more pointed one of the question you've asked there, Randall. You know, I've heard I've had people ask me, "Is God schizophrenic? Mm-hmm. You know, violent in the Old Testament and and you know loving in the New Testament." I sometimes like to play with that question, and when people say, is God schizophrenic, I sometimes like to look at them and say, do you mean the fact that God is loving in the Old Testament and violent in the New Testament? Because that always gets a reaction to go, what do you mean? Well, to go, you can find passages in the New Testament mm-hmm. that are fairly uh, fruity, and you can find passages in the Old Testament that are, that are wonderfully loving. And uh, one of my inter- well, in terms of that, one of the most interesting ones I... I think in the Old Testament for me that I often like to, 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 to reflect on is in, in the book of Jonah, 
uh, which is a story, you know, we all, everyone knows the Jonah and the Whale kind of story, Sunday school story, but we often forget the second part of it, you know, uh, when, uh, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, kind of preaches and they repent and God forgives them, uh, forgives them, and Jonah has this rant at God, this was why I didn't want to go, because I knew that you were a God who is too loving and so merciful and forgiving unto the 100th generation and stuff, and basically I wanted wrath and destruction, and, and you didn't you didn't bring it. And I think what Jonah's wrestling there and we wrestle with is this tendency to we set up our image of God and we ignore the other half of it. And the God of the Bible is a God who is a judge. He is a God who is holy. He is a God of, of wrath. And he's a God who is going to bring judgment. Um, he's a God who, on one hand, we should be quaking in our boots before. As evangelicals, we have a tendency to make God our best buddy and, you know, kind of we go drinking with him and we forget this is the all-powerful, all-sovereign mm. God of the universe. On the other hand... We also have a God who loves us so much that he sent Christ. And holding those two things together, I think, lies at the heart of biblical theology and lies at the heart of the Christian faith. And one of my favorite theological books of all of all time, I think if I could take one book to a desert island, is John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. Even more than the Bible? No, no, it's a theological book. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, Sneaky. no. Sneaky. I'm kidding. Everybody knows you'd also have the Bible. Absolutely, but I'd have the I'd have the Bible. But John Stott, go ahead. John Stott's but the cross of Christ, because John yes. does a beautiful job there of setting out the doctrine of the of the wrath of God that's, that's, that we often don't like to talk about. Mm. But John's point is, unless we understand God's wrath and why God is a God of judgment and what it means for God to be holy, we will not understand what it means to be a sinner. We tend to, as Christians, play into the into the thinking. I think that God is just a slightly like a bigger version of us, like our Father, maybe but a little bit bigger. And if we do if we commit a sin it's we've you know we've misbehaved a little and god just really should just give us a slap on the wrist and let us move on we haven't really understood what it means to be sinners who have offended a holy god and therefore how desperately we need the love of the love of god and how desperately we need the, the atoning work of christ and so in one sense if you don't understand god's wrath and god's judgment you will not wholly appreciate the cross and so I think holding biblical theology together is is crucial. Sometimes it will scare us, sometimes it will disturb us, but in the end we'll end up with a much richer view of God and a much deeper appreciation of the work of God in Christ. Because I remember, I think, growing up as a young Christian, I'd have affirmed that, you know, Jesus died for me, but I don't think I really knew what that meant until I first appreciated what sin meant. And probably one of my greatest heroes in Christian the history of Christian, uh, the Christian church and church history is John Newton. Mm. Um, you know, we all know him because he wrote Amazing Grace, but his biography is incredible. And I mean, really, that was his experience. It was when that, that line uh, that saved a wretch like me, he really came to understand what it meant to be a wretch, to be utterly hopeless, to be utterly, utterly, utterly naked in the face of a, of a God who should really just destroy you for who you are. And he had every good reason to think that. His life was a complete utter thorough mess and then has this incredibly powerful conversion experience when he realizes how much god has loved him and what god has done in the cross and of course out of that deep reflection on that comes amazing grace and uh, in john newton's almost last words he uh, were um on his as he lay dying on his deathbed where my, my memory is almost gone but i remember two things that that i am a great sinner and that jesus is a great savior and i think on that that's christian theology encapsulated Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.